0: The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 78 of the practice of being seen podcast. The Popscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations where we examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and with the world around us. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to Therapist Changemakers. Have you thought of relationships as sacred and spiritual spaces? You'll love this conversation. We're taking a deep dive and opening your eyes to new ways of thinking of yourself and your relationship to others. My guest, Tamara Powell, is a colleague and a past guest of the show from Season 1, Episode 24, The Dance of Sensuality and Spirituality. Tamara's favorite topic, sacred psychology, is the intersection between traditional psychology with a focus on the holistic self, including spirituality of a person, and it honors the divine nature in all of us, and the connection to a higher power. Relationships can be mirrors, revealing our growth edges, and Tamara explains these spaces as heavenly sandpaper, or the space in life that rubs us and causes us to grow and explore form of polishing. Life is full of reflection points that grow our self-esteem as we learn how to more realistically see the world. And yet, sometimes, we feel like misfits or a trapezoid in a world full of circles. Tamara believes that suffering results when we don't fit in. In this episode, we're discussing what it means to fully embrace another person's everything. What radical autonomy is and what it entails and what truth really is and how to honor your perception and the other person's as well. And how to identify the gremlins in your relationships? Dive in with us. Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. We're joined today by Tamara Powell, a friend and colleague and a past guest on the show last season. Tamara is making a second appearance with us today, and I am so grateful to have you here.
1: Thank you I'm for joining us. so excited. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> me too. And
0: you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is that we're going to dive in today and talk about what I believe is probably one of your favorite topics, mm-hmm. sacred psychology. It is my favorite. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what sacred
1: psychology means to you? Yes, for me, it's that intersection between traditional psychology and a focus on the holistic self, which includes the spirituality of a person. So I call it sacred because it's honoring the divine nature within all of us and the connection to source, spirit, God, goddess, whatever you want to call it. Mm.
0: And that is something that exists in all of us, whether it's something that we're naming and noticing or
1: not. Absolutely. It's that transcendent quality to humanity, that space in us that longs for a connection to something outside of ourselves, whether that's nature or a lover even. I mean, it doesn't always have to be. What I would consider divine or spiritual, but there's a spiritual essence to all sorts of things in connectfulness, right, so I believe so, yeah, yeah, and so I
0: think this is one of those places where even relationships can become incredibly sacred because they help us to connect to something outside of ourself, yeah, I call
1: that sacred sexuality <laughs> if it's a <laughs> if it's a romantic partner, but yes, well, dive in there with me a little bit, tell me more, sure, so I think. What you're tapping into is that relationships can be a beautiful mirror for us, oftentimes heavenly sandpaper as well. (laughs) It rubs us in spaces to let us know where our growth edges are. And when you have two partners who are both willing to enter into that dance together, there's this transcendence, one of my favorite words, quality to the nature of that relationship where it takes you beyond just the me plus you equals we space. Talk to me a little bit about this because one of the things you just said where
0: you were talking about the mirror and Mm -hmm. you talked about the heavenly sandpaper.
1: Yes, heavenly sandpaper. (laughs) A lot of things can be heavenly sandpaper if you allow it. It's the spaces in life that irritate us or rub us, or not always in a frustrating emotion, but they trigger an emotion in us. And if we allow, just like a fine artist using sandpaper to create a sculpture, a work of art, if we allow that rubbing to bring us to a space of exploration where we find where we need to perhaps grow a little bit more, some really beautiful things can emerge in us.
0: I'm laughing because mm-hmm. of the words I'm writing down in my notepad. Mm-hmm. I just wrote down rubbing
1: exploration growth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, some solo sexuality is always good, too. <laughs> oh, but the thing here
0: is that, you know, we are often as humans. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about a really collective we right now. Sure. We are often so scared of the messy in between gray, dark, shadowy spaces. And what I really hear you talking about and what I totally believe to be true myself is that it's in
1: those spaces where intimacy grows. Yes. Those are those reach out moments that Gottman talks about. (laughs) It's the moment that takes us beyond us (laughs) into either a new growth space for us, or a new realm between partners or whoever many people were talking about at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Esther Perel talks about
0: how it's in relationship that we actually learn about ourselves and that we gain a sense of our identity and that even in happy couples, sometimes a partner may stray or their minds may stray because they're looking
1: for a part of themselves that they have lost. I love that. I do. And I firmly believe in that. It instantly set my mind down a rabbit trail of how in Jungian or you know, modern psychodynamic therapy, when I, even when it comes to dreams, and which you know, it could be the fantasy at night or the brain just processing what you've gone through during the day, I love the idea that the people in our dreams really are just extensions of the themes of ourselves. So you might be dreaming about a past lover, but when I work with clients, it's more of a, what does that lover represent for you? Where were you at at that time of life? Was it security? Was it passion? Was it adventure? Yeah.
0: What were mm-hmm. you seeking?
1: Yes. Yeah. What are you seeking now that's not inherent? Doesn't mean you have to go outside of your relationship to get it. But to give yourself permission to explore in your mind mm-hmm. what it
0: is that is either missing or that you're seeking or craving or
1: longing for. Absolutely. And it does take another person to reflect that back in us. I mean, if you, we were just sat up on a, you know, an ashram up in Tibet somewhere and we never spoke with another human being, didn't you know, see another human being, I'm not sure we would have a whole lot of growth edges brought to mind. Yeah. So let's talk about these reflection points, the other mm-hmm. being a reflection point, because these
0: are some of the sacred points of relationships. Is it's these reflection points. It's these mirrors.
1: Yeah, and it starts for us at birth, doesn't it? I mean, the second that a caregiver starts speaking to us and we become more and more aware that we are separate from others, it's a trippy thing to think about that our self-esteem is really based on how do you see me rather than how I see myself, the intersection of it. I can love myself and have all the self-confidence in the world, but if I'm afraid that other people aren't going to accept what I'm bringing... There can also be issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a back and forthness of this. Mm -hmm. It's early on. It's a how do I learn to see the world, which is through your eyes or whomever's Mm -hmm. eyes. And then later in life, it's a do I trust my worldview and is the way that I'm seeing myself in the world an accurate representation or am I still kind of insecure and seeking a new reflection? through the people around me.
1: Absolutely, it's a both and. And it can get very trippy, but it's some great exploration if you're willing to dive in. My clients often laugh at me sometimes
0: in sessions because my line of thought sounds very circular.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I, you know, it's a sacred geometry symbol right there, so. (laughs) It is. Even that's lovely. So
0: dance with me a little around this, Tamara, you know, one of the other things that you talk so much about are misfits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about the sacred geometry and you talk about trapezoids. Yes. Being a trapezoid in a world full of circles. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So go go there with me a little bit more. I truly believe that everyone has a touch of trapezoid in them, and I celebrate that. I mean, on one hand, what is normal anyway, but it's this notion that somehow we get in our minds, again, very early on, that there's a right and wrong way of doing things. And what happens when a munchkin comes onto this planet, and they just... Cannot, for whatever reason or do not want to go along with the flow there's something about them that's different, and if they're willing to honor that, some truly great things can happen. but when they're not able to or don't even know how to, a lot of suffering results and we see at least in my clients with my specialties, a lot of you know religious abuse or spiritual abuse or sexual abuse, um, which I just mean a misuse of a human being. There's a lot of confusion that takes place. When I hear
0: you say the words misuse of a human being, the words that come to my mind or the place where that resonates for me is
1: I go to a place of power over dominion over. Right. Yeah. Rather than honoring of the sacred nature within that person and Mm -hmm. letting them form that identity that we were so, you know, vividly talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm
0: this is a big conversation today, right? Mm -hmm. A lack of consent. Because, I mean, maybe we have to back up and define what consent really is. Sure. But I Uh, think... (laughs) uh, Permission at its base, but... Yeah, yeah, and it's more than just permission. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, sure, you can do that to me or around me Mm -hmm. or near me. But it's more of a deeper understanding of, do I even have the power to say no? Right. So
1: this is something that has been inherent to my own life. I mean, obviously because we coaches and therapists work with what (laughs) we've lived and are drawn to. And I've always been curious as to why the rest of the planet at large outside of the pluralistic ones weren't pluralistic. It didn't make sense to me growing up. I was a military brat and I was also raised in evangelical Christianity. And I just didn't get why, you know, denominations even among Protestants were arguing over what I consider complete BS. <laughs> like, does it doesn't matter whether or not someone's a five-point Calvinist or a three-point Armenian or we have guitar in our worship or we don't or that person wants blue hair like my youngest. Or It didn't occur to me until I got older. And so it's been my favorite puzzle of untangling why we do not honor, why we don't give that consent to another human being to figure out themselves, why we can't honor the misfit. And what's the hypothesis that you're coming to in your life, in your work, in your being? That sounds, it's going to be my future book, a <laughs> preview. It's a, there's a lack of comfortability with what I'm now calling radical autonomy. Mm. Yeah. Where we don't know how or it scares us. It really depends upon the person's conditioning we don't know what it means for us to fully embrace another person's everything. And that shows up in our parenting and it shows up in our sex and it shows up in our business relationships.
0: Mm, I'm just breathing that one yeah. in and there's so much there to absorb and I don't want to clutter it
1: with more thoughts. Mm.
0: Radical autonomy. Radical autonomy, being able to kind of breathe in another person's everythingness.
1: Yeah, their beingness, their essence. Their sacred nature that we all have. And so it's this trippy dance. You love that word dance. It's this trippy dance between we are all one, we are all alike at some at our core essence, right? We're all energy. We know that if we break it down to the most basic science. But at the same time, we are completely separate and we reflect the sacred to one another in totally different ways, like a beautiful stained glass. And so it's that beautiful, how do I connect with you while remaining completely intact at the same time? And that trips people up. It does. And, you know, there's, there's two conversations running around in my
0: head that are kind of like wanting to enter this one. Mm. One of them is, you know, Stan Tacken has an amazing TED Talk. It's, Relationships are Difficult, But Why? It's
1: <laughs> a great title. <laughs> That's the title of it. It's a great and title.
0: Essentially, he talks about relationships are difficult because we're all different people. Right. Duh, right. And then right. the other conversation that enters my head is this conversation that I've had with a local mama one day when we were kind of running around trying to help each other out, doing the mama things. And my kids were doing their sibling things, like, you're to this, you're to that, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And we got there and we got there late. And I was a little apologetic. And she's like, oh, they were having a sibling thing. Like, it was kind of like, you're not like me. You're different. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it, it was such a light bulb moment for me when she said it because it was one of those moments where I was like, this is what we all struggle with. Like The siblingness really helps us see it, but we all struggle with the same exact thing. You are not exactly who I am. And therefore, it challenges something about me.
1: Right. And we're seeing this on a global scale, especially here in the United States. I don't Mm -hmm. want to dive too much into politics, but we can see this really nitty gritty, awful grade sandpaper going on of, can I celebrate another's culture while taking pride in my own? Right. Without appropriating it, without stealing it, without you know, smearing it. There's a big difference between nationalism and patriotism and all the isms. And can I listen to someone else's beliefs
0: without their beliefs having to mean that mine aren't true or don't exist? Or is there a space for both of us to exist here?
1: And we don't see that played any more strongly than on social media. Can you keep scrolling? Ask yourself that without having to stop and comment because you don't agree with somebody else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm giggling because my impulse these days is to get off social media as much as possible. And there's a space to explore that too. Where's my happy balance with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really an interesting space. Mm -hmm. You want to go there? Yeah, of
1: course I do. (laughs) (laughs) all the time as someone who runs several different businesses to a large extent online. And I run a Facebook group. That's something that's in my awareness all day, every day. Yeah. And each of us, I think, has to come to our own happy medium with that. How do I stay an awoken human being who's aware while also being very conscious of when I am being triggered? And what I need for self-care, where's my happy limit with it? How do I advocate for another human being while also allowing for pluralism? Trippy and tricky. it is. Yeah. And
0: for me, I'm coming to the point where a lot of those answers within myself bring me back to the person-to-person connections that I'm realizing I want more and more and more of in my life. The physical connections, the or the more intimate connections, sure. In scheduling phone calls, in having meetings with, and away from the scrolling and the mindlessness of not knowing what I'm actually letting into my
1: consciousness. Mm, I love it. So it's more of a mindfulness, a conscious awareness of where we're engaging, how we're engaging, and, and whom,
0: I, yeah, mm, whom we're it. engaging with. Beautiful. Yeah.
1: so let me ask you then rebecca where do you see the sacred being brought into your therapy practice because now i'm now i want to compare notes here yeah i think the sacred comes in whenever
0: we get close to vocalizing our truths
1: Ooh, i love that
0: I think this is one of the things that I work with a lot of couples, and one of the things that I see often is couples get into these deadlocks when they're tiptoeing around trying to appease each other and not being true to themselves.
1: I can't agree with that more.
0: (laughs) And then the other population I work with are therapists who in their own ways are struggling to find their own voices. So I think that this is the work of speaking our truths. I feel like this is our sacredness. It's our standing firmly in who we are mm-hmm. and being able to honor ourselves in that way. That,
1: that is our worthiness. That is
0: our deservingness.
1: And for me, when you come from that framework of every human being bears a spark of the divine source, whatever you want to call it, even if it's just the universal stardust, I mean, that's freaking amazing in and of itself. So when I look at my clients through that lens, my children through that lens, my partner through that lens, other therapists through that lens, it allows me this beautiful curiosity of, huh, when they speak their truth, I may be hearing some profound wisdom. I mean, as, now to some of you, it may just sound like some clanging and sometimes I think there is because I don't think they're very mindful, but it's everything on a continuum, right? I love that space of when a partner advocates for themselves in a couple's therapy session and they just speak their truth of whether it's a preference or a pain. That's a space where the sacred comes in. I think it also invites in
0: the space for healing hmm between the couple right when one partner can say the thing that really bothers me is and what I really need is whatever those things are there's a recipe in there there's a really sacred recipe that
1: lives in that space I so agree it also takes a partner who's listening to be receptive to hearing without judgment
0: yeah, well, that's the word. I know. That's the You're Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And to acknowledge that that partner who's listening also has needs and wants and desires mm-hmm. and that they also have to be heard. Right. right. And that there's a symbiosis
1: between the two. And it doesn't negate it either. I think that's what people are so afraid of sometimes. Well, mm-hmm. if I'm right and they're right, then where's the objective truth in it? <laughs> So, can we talk about truth for a minute? Sure.
0: <laughs> because this is something that I hear so often in couples' therapy sessions. Mm. I just want them to be honest with me. I just want them to tell me the truth. They lie to me all the time. These kinds mm. of conversations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I find them so interesting because truth is so
1: subjective. Right? <laughs> like, I know I'm stepping into hot water if we're taking that to a religious realm, but even there, because we're contextual beings, it's always going to be subjective. Mm-hmm. Always. There's my truth and your truth, and then people like to say, you know, the real truth. But I'm not sure we can ever get to that real yeah. truth.
0: It's an unknown, an untangible. It lies either in somebody's perception or it's
1: imperceivable. Right. Because even as therapists, if we sent, you know, GoPros home on our clients' heads and watch the videotapes for the next week, we'd still be filtering our... Projections. Ex- so right. Our experience yes. of watching the he said, she said go down. Very much. Very much. Mm. Yeah. But yet our subjective truths, our subjective perceptions of realities must be shared. Very much. I was recently talking to
0: a clinician on the podcast. We were talking about neurodiversity. Mm-hmm he shared this amazing statement with me that has just been like rippling forth me in such an awesome way, but we were talking about memory, right? And so when we're Mm -hmm. talking about truth, kind of memory is part of this conversation and we're talking about memory. And he was saying, the thing is about long-term memory that we only ever remember the last time we remembered something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's why we don't allow eyewitness testimony too. (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) But so when we're working with a couple and their memories are different, Mm -hmm. this is part of the dynamic that's shaping the space between them.
1: Right. And I'm just here proposing if we can get to that radical autonomy, it won't affect us when our partner remembers it completely differently. (laughs) Talk us through that a little bit. What exactly does that
0: look? What exactly? Give me a really exact... (laughs)
1: I'm hearing myself say that and I'm laughing. (laughs) No, No. like I haven't finished (laughs) writing the book yet. I don't know if I can give it to you really exactly, but my best felt sense of it is when I am so grounded in who I am, I don't need to be reactive. I can honor my sacred, which then naturally extends to my partner or whoever I'm talking to. And it's been fascinating for me to watch because once you wake up to it, it almost becomes laughable when you're scrolling through social media and you see this person triggered and that person triggered or my child triggered by her sibling. It's like, it should not matter. This happened in our car just last night. And it was a maddening conversation to listen to one arguing for 1980s and 90s. I was totally on that kid's side. Sorry. And the other one (laughs) arguing for trap rap with this new genre of rap music. And, um, I just kept saying, I don't know why it's bothering you that the other one disagrees with you. It's almost unfathomable to me at this point. So it's that space. You want exactness. It's that space of if I can honor my sacred, then I can honor your sacred. And if I remember an argument one way and you remember an argument the other way, that's just information for me to go, ah, that's your perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Now it makes sense as to why you're so annoyed with me. (laughs) Ah, there's space in here also
0: in honoring the other person's perception and honoring your own. There's also space to learn about that other person and learn about why they are reactive when they are.
1: Right. And that's why I call it radical autonomy, because it goes beyond just the live and let live or just tolerate or accept. Like, ugh, my neighbor's a Muslim. I mean, whatever. They just worship a different God, which we'll save that argument for another whole day. To the point of what you just described of being curious and being open and actually celebrating. Like, Tell me about what's different between you and I. Yes. And so what I love, since you and I are both, you know, like word witches, I love the etymology of things. When you think about the root of the word radical, while we use it for things that are so like crazy and outside the box, what I find cheeky about it is that it actually means going to the root of. (laughs) So radical autonomy, in my opinion, is getting back to the fundamental divine nature of humanity getting to the root of autonomy. And then, of course, adding in the, and that's such a foreign concept that it is outside the box. It's really a form of rediscovering the self. Yes. And when you rediscover the self, you rediscover everything else too. It's making me think about how relationships,
0: sacred relationships, unions, spaces to really explore and To be bewildered by Mm -hmm. these types of, you know, the monogamous relationships some of us desire for a lifetime. Sure. Within them lies the sacred space. And within that sacred space lies a space to keep coming back to knowing the self, to keep going deeper into that space by or through or in synchronicity with knowing each other.
1: Yes, so I've started to have fun with this idea that every time I get triggered, it's more of a, now it's like a, huh, I did not know that about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now what do I want to do with that? Interesting. Yeah. You know,
0: this is one of the things my husband and I goof on each other about a little bit in a really mm-hmm. beautiful way. But we noticed that we have our biggest growth moments as a couple mm-hmm. on the other side of a fight. Right. Right. And we are also noticing that there are certain themes or patterns that tend to come up in
1: those fights. Right. And every couple has at least two or three of those. I call them gremlins. I think I stole that from Gottman.
0: Mm, I love those gremlins. Yeah. And in these gremlins, in these moments, when we can start to identify them and know them, we can
1: get a little bit ahead of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. And giving language to that, I love when a couple can be playful and gamify it. And it does take some healing first. So if you're not there yet, you know, working with a great couples therapist is a good start. But once you start really gaining some momentum in this radical autonomy piece, then it can become playful and you guys can goof on each other and you can start to see the gremlins. And now it becomes a me and you against the issue rather than the issue coming between us we just go back to the drawing board in that moment we're like uh oh, yeah there's a thing Tamara hates to be controlled <laughs> so even if it's uh i'm just asking you to be here at a certain time <laughs> right yeah. terry real calls it the more the more the more you do this the more i do that the, yeah hell yeah i call that the seesaw effect too back and forth
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah so in identifying these patterns we learn how to see ourselves more accurately. Right. And in those reflective moments, we can see, oh, this is that space where you're becoming abrasive, where I'm not seeing something about myself, or maybe the thing you're showing me about myself is the thing
1: that I don't like to see. Usually. Nine times out of 10. Esther Perel, I think, was the one that opened my eyes to that radical concept that, huh, (laughs) what we really like in relationships is for people to see us the way that we want to be seen. (laughs) And there's a beautiful, (laughs) sacred psychology component to that in that I personally believe we all have natural, you know, spiritual giftings. And for some of us that maybe you're very nurturing or somebody else may be a great in, enthusiastic, encourager, etc. And when we're not allowed to bring those authentic parts of us into a relationship, when those are pushed away or dampened down or not acknowledged, even in childhood by parents, that's when the soul starts to suffer. And that's where the psyche starts to struggle. And those relationships won't last because you're not accepting of my best parts. Why aren't you celebrating me? Or if they last, they're going to
0: last at the expense of somebody really feeling like they can't show up.
1: Right. And so Esther, when she's talking to people still looking for their spiritual partner, says rather than making a hell a long list of what you want in them, look for what it is that you want to bring to a relationship and now find a partner that appreciates that in you, mm. which I think is way more empowering. I love that. Yeah. Best mm. dating advice ever. Write it down, people. Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back to my
0: single days. Sure. And (laughs) it's a long time ago. But I'm thinking back and I'm thinking there were certainly manifestation lists that crowded some journals somewhere. Things Oh, totally.
1: Totally. He's got to be 6'3",
0: dark hair, (laughs) (laughs) dimples. That must have been your list. Yeah. If mine said 6'3", I surely didn't catch that.
1: Girl, I'm 5'3". I don't know what was on my list, but (laughs) I'm thinking about all the conglomerations of ones I've heard over the years from young women. (laughs) Tall, dark, and handsome, and drives a
0: Ferrari. I think one of the things on my list was he has to be able to sing like James Taylor. Ooh. Yeah.
1: That's a clever one.
0: Yeah. There was something about that. No, he doesn't sing. Oh. (laughs) That's
1: funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let me put you on the hot seat. What do you most enjoy bringing to all your relationships because I found that there's a common pattern there too. Mm, I go deep. Yeah, so you need someone I that mean, can tolerate
0: your depth. That's something that I need. I need someone that can sit in that space with me and doesn't squelch it.
1: Now reflect it back to me. Shine the mm. mirror on that. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, you know, one of the arguments my husband and I used to have had a lot to do with this. And we came up with a shorthand to help us around it over the years. I go on this thing that we've commonly named now the Becca train, where it's it's my (laughs) thought train, right? Yes. The Becca train. We go on the Becca train. Choo, choo. Love it. Sometimes he's just exhausted and not in the mood to get on the train. Mm -hmm. And so the shorthand is, do you want to get on the train or do you want to know where it stops? That's amazing. That's perfect. What a perfect example of a sacred relationship. Mm -hmm. It really honors the fact that I have this process and that Mm -hmm. sometimes he can join me and sometimes he can't. And it honors him. It does. It honors both of us. It allows me to know if I need to have that process, maybe I need to have it with another amazing person
1: in my life. Right. Radical autonomy for the win. Booyah. I love it. What about you? Where does it show up in your life? So, as a type 7 on the Enneagram, I'm a total Enneagram nut. I am the... Do you want to break that down for our listeners who have no idea perhaps what the Enneagram is? It is a personality indicator, but unlike most personality indicators, this one has been around since at least 2500 BC. And it has been applied to all sorts of things from religion to philosophy and now modern neuroscience. And what I love about the Enneagram as opposed to other ones is that it does get down with the notion that... We are not our personalities. And it talks to you about that. That is a set of conditioned behaviors and preferences. So even the most staunch behavioral psychologist who says, whatever we're calling the personality does not exist, different settings, different behaviors, the Enneagram goes, yeah, you're totally right. And yet you're still prone to these patterns that you and I have been talking about. And so how about we explore them and... Notice where we get stuck and also notice where your innate divine spiritual giftings are, regardless of spiritual worldview. And so, a seven, I'm the enthusiast. And what I really do love about myself, what I cannot help, is just what I came into this incarnation, this flesh and blood suit to do, is to give people a little rocket fuel in their veins every day. Like, <laughs> I just, I joke that I walk around with a pocket full of silver linings. Now, that's everything's on a continuum. So in a very unhealthy type seven, they rush out of the moment. They're not that great at sitting still and exploring. So the depth, like you and I, if we had met at 15, I'd be like, oh, I want to be like Rebecca, but God, like now what else? Like Onto the next experience. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to sit still with you that long. We're the cheerleader. So on a good day, we are encouraging and waking people back up to this magic and the spirituality all around them at all times. And on a tough day, we can get really hard on ourselves and hard on the people around us, the inner critic takes over. And so where Will and I, my boyfriend, tend to struggle with is if I'm really excited about an experience, experiences to me are everything, that's why I'm a diehard existentialist, if I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing, this connection that I'm having right now with Rebecca or this glass of wine or whatever, I, we find everything amazing. <laughs> <laughs> when they don't enjoy it with us, it hurts our freaking feelings. Oh. Yes, it's so funny. But it's now not what joining it, with. Yes, it's so funny. And so we want to walk around and we're savoring it. And if we at all pick up on the fact that the people around us are not savoring it with us, we're not careful, we take it personally rather than radical autonomy, recognizing that that may not be their cup of tea and I may not be the right time. Like you said, your husband may not be ready for that Rebecca train. And so that's what I think I've been working on for the last decade is can I appreciate an experience for my own experience sake?
0: Can it be just about you in that experience right? as opposed to needing the other to join you there?
1: Right. Without that validation. (laughs) Yeah. Gee, isn't that work? <sighs> it is. It hurts so good. It's a good work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, I'm I'm finding myself struck right now thinking about some of the most common issues that I hear couples and individuals talking about in relationships. Mm-hmm. Things like, do you desire me? Am I right. enough for you? Do you know me? Mm-hmm. Can I trust
1: you? Right. And I think in order to get to that space of being able to offer that to another human being, we have to trust ourselves, know that we're good enough, <laughs> know that we're desirable. So right, it's that dance if we're again. We're
0: always looking for those things external from ourselves. Then even when they're reflected back to us, and even when someone says, you're amazing, I totally desire you,
1: the response is going to be, why? Right. <laughs> And so the best sex of my life has always happened when I entered the room feeling seductive and excited and confident. Mm -hmm. And then I'm able to celebrate that in my partner and tell him or her, depending on who we're playing with at the time, why they're so sexy.
0: That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Radical autonomy. autonomy. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So when is this book coming out? I just started (laughs) writing it. Girl, I need to get on it. But other of an issues, I have to make sure that I give myself enough space and don't have too many projects going on at the same time. Oh gosh, I know nothing about that. Oh girl, you can relate, <laughs> huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, Between
1: really private scary. practice and teaching at the university and coaching um, and consulting and podcasting and babies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And relationships and all the other and things rela- in life. Yeah. I want to have sex today. I'll <laughs> <laughs> squeeze <laughs> that in. Then sit down to write a book. Yeah. Yeah. It'll happen eventually. (laughs) Little by little. Little by little. Hmm.
0: Tamara, this has been delicious. Thank you so much for joining me here and for dancing with me in this discussion of radical
1: autonomy and sacredness and all of these beautiful in-between spaces. Thank you for letting me share in this sacred experience with another human being. It's just a joy and a pleasure. I honor you. Thank you.
0: I honor you as well. Thanks. Thanks. I'd love to hear what you're taking with you from this conversation. Join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Pobscast or send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com and let us know. If you'd like to learn more about my relationship therapy practice or intensive couples retreats in New York, go to connectfulness.com. There's a link in the show notes. If you're a fan of the Popscast and you'd like to help support the show, go ahead and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or consider joining our online discussion group that meets on the last Thursday of the month through September of 2018. We're journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. Link to join in the show notes. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing behind-the-scenes support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr. produced by Kidney Stone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed the show and that you'll join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.